Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Thank you so much for tuning in this week to this really special episode. Then again, when isn't it a special time to tune in to some of your favorite scary stories? Without further ado, let us begin. As we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. When my grandpa died, I accidentally discovered a family secret I wish I hadn't. Written by Withy Woodwitch. My grandma passed away when I was little. I don't remember much about her apart from the vaguest of memories. She always wore flowery dresses, and she always fed me treats when my mother wasn't looking. My grandpa never remarried. My mother always said it was because he loved his wife so much that nobody would be able to take her place. When I got older, I found this both heartbreaking and romantic. Grandma had had her own room, and Grandpa said it was because he snored so much that they had to sleep separately. When she died, he locked her room up, and it was the only place in the house that we were not permitted to go. Sometimes, we would try to peep through the keyhole, but someone would always scream about seeing a ghost and we would all run away. I don't think Grandpa was lonely. We were a big part of his life. He lived close by, so we all piled into his house regularly, filling his house with noise and life. I would play in his garden with my cousins while the adults talked and cooked. In the summer, the garden bloomed with the flowers that my grandma had loved, hydrangeas being her favorite. In the winter, it was hung with balls of fat and birdseed, and the bird feeder was always fully stocked. My grandma had loved birds, Grandpa had said, and always worried that they wouldn't have enough to eat when the weather got colder. I was unofficially my grandpa's favorite. He would bounce me on his knee and sing a song about my name that I didn't understand, but I thought it was hilarious. Lily the Pink. I took to wearing pink whenever I visited. He took over my grandma's job of handing out treats to all of us cautioning us not to tell their parents, although I'm sure our parents knew full well what was going on from the telltale smears of chocolate around our mouths. He was a gentle, mild man who hardly ever raised his voice. The only time that I can never remember him being slightly angry was when my brother Craig and I were fighting. Craig had kicked me in the leg hard enough to leave the print of his shoe sole on me, and Grandpa had almost shouted at them. Unused to Grandpa scolding us, Craig had started to cry, and Grandpa had taken him aside and given him a long, serious talk about the importance of family. You never hurt family, he had told him. Your family is important. And Craig always treated me pretty well after that. When Grandpa grew frail, he needed more help, so as his favorite, it naturally felt to me to take on part of his care. I shared my duties with a home carer, Although they weren't really duties, as I loved him so much, I would have done anything for my grandpa. His mind remained mostly sharp, with occasional lapses that he referred to as senior moments. Sometimes he would call me by my mother's name, but he would always correct himself. When he became seriously ill, I quit my job to be his full-time carrier. Being put at a nursing home was grandpa's biggest fear 
and he made me promise over and over again that I wouldn't allow that to happen. I can't leave her, he said. She's still here. We said, till death do us part, and I'm not dead yet. Even as an adult, I wasn't allowed into her room. He told me that he had kept it exactly the same as the day she had died, a shrine to her memory. He got weak. He couldn't eat unless I spoon-fed him. The nurse who visited every day fitted him with a catheter and told me that he should really be in hospice, but I ignored her. If he wanted to die at home, I would honor my promise to let him do so. He liked to talk to me. He reminisced about the day that he had met my grandma, the day each grandchild was born. He loved having so many grandchildren, he had told me. He loved to see us thrive, and mourned the fact that he wouldn't leave to see his great-grandchildren. My eldest cousin was pregnant, but it was doubtful that he would be alive by the time she gave birth. He never got sad. He had lived a very full life and a happy one. But he did get anxious, although he said he wasn't afraid to die. He said it was what might come after that worried him. He spent his last days barely aware of what was going on around him. The family visited, staying as long as they could and sometimes his small modest room was packed with people, spilling from the doorway. The kettle was never cold, the house never empty. Except for the night, he finally died. I was with him, along with my mother and my aunt. They had fallen asleep in their chairs, their gentle snoring the only sound in the room, beside the ticking of Grandpa's old clock and the slow, labor breathing of my Grandpa. He had regained consciousness briefly before he had died, and though I might have woken my mother and aunt so they could share, some selfish instinct to stop me from doing so. I knew, you see, and I wanted this moment to be my own. His eyes were blurry, but they managed to focus on me. His cheeks twitched as he tried to muster a smile. Lily the Pink, he whispered. I whispered back. Yes, it's me. I'm sorry, he said. I took the gnarled hand that lay on the covers. His fingers were cold. Oh, you don't have to apologize, Grandpa, I told him. I wanted to cry, but he had always hated to see me cry. Yes, I do. He sank back on his pillow, the exchange clearly exhausting him. I'm sorry for what comes after. You never hurt family. Family is important, he said. He died then, and that was when I allowed myself to cry. I would miss him, but I couldn't be sad for him. He was going to see Grandma after all these years. I imagined him strong again, walking into a white light and emerging on the other side to a garden where flowers always bloomed and the birds were always singing, my grandma waiting at the end of the path. As with his care, it fell mostly to me to clear out his house. I had help in the evenings and the weekends, but most of the time it was just me his room was the hardest for me to do, and I cried often as I worked. It would have been poetic if the clock in his room had stopped ticking when he had died, but it continued to tick in defiance of my wishes, 
a constant background to my chore. I boxed everything up, sealing and labeling my grandpa's life. Everything that he had experienced was being compartmentalized into what was of value and what was not. The richness and experience of his life had been reduced to odds and ends to be sorted to put away. I sorted things for charity, heirlooms to be shared out amongst the rest of the family, memories to be stored away in the attic. Everything I picked up had some kind of significance, whether it was the everyday dirtiness of his life or the mementos of his history, a pen that he would never write with again, a book he hadn't finished reading. These things were just as poignant as his medals and his photographs. There were old love letters from my grandma, souvenirs from holidays, pictures that we had painted for him, birthday cards that we had sent, and finally, in the depths of an old dented tobacco tin, buried beneath old cinema ticket subs and faded postcards, the key to my grandma's room. It felt almost sacrilegious to go in there after all these years, yet the morbid fascination with grandma's room had stayed with me since I was a child and I couldn't have kept out even if I hadn't had a job to do. From the way Grandpa had spoken about her presence in the house, I almost expected to open the door and find her there, either as a desiccated corpse stretched out on the bed, or as a taxidermied mummy propped up in a chair. She wasn't, of course. The room was empty of life and death, as it had been for decades. It smelled stale in there, as was to be expected, and slightly sweet with an old scent that might have been violets and it might have been roses. It was a very feminine room. The wallpaper bore the same floral motif that she had favored on her dresses. Grandpa had kept the curtains closed, so it hadn't faded, apart from a narrow stripe from the persistent sunbeam that angled towards the narrow bed. My first thought as I walked in was that it felt like a stage set, as if every item in the room was a prop. Had she died in here, I couldn't remember what I had been told. I found myself looking for signs of her passing, a life interrupted on the spot. As with my grandpa's room, I didn't know where to start, but this time it was because everything was so familiar yet unfamiliar at the same time. There were memories to be found here, as buried as the key to her room had been. The first thing I did was to pull open the curtains. With some natural light in there, everything felt a little more real, and I was able to look around without the feeding of a disassociation that I had felt upon entering. I couldn't tackle her room that day, it was too soon. I wanted the chance to remember more, to explore and to reconnect with the woman who had sat me on her knee. How could I discover this unknown life and collapse it all in the same day? Even though she had died long ago, it still felt like prying to go through her personal items. I sifted through her belongings with less sentimentality but more curiosity than I had with my grandpa's room. A beloved life was stored within these walls, but one that I had barely any memory of. So, while everything I picked up had a story behind it, I did not know what it was. There was a pegboard on one wall with baby booties hung on it. I counted them and they matched the number of grandchildren in the family. And Grandma had apparently kept a pair from each of us. 
We were represented to in framed photos, both on the wall and on our dressing table, alongside perfume bottles from which the contents had long since evaporated, and old cosmetics with faded labels. There was also a jewelry box on our dressing table that drew my attention. A mother of pearl was inlaid on the lid, and it was cracked open, with a string of amber beads spilling out. That jewelry box summoned a stubborn memory of sitting on the knee of a woman who wore flowers and smelled like flowers, and sifting through the contents. The jewelry inside was all cheap stuff, but it was colorful and sparkling, something that would have fascinated younger me. I was allowed to choose anything, she said, any piece that I wanted. There was a butterfly brooch that I suddenly recalled pinned to her dress. Right in the center of a printed flowers, though, it had landed there to drink nectar. I had a whole box of cut-price finery to choose from, but for some reason that brooch stood out to me. You want this? Uh, are you sure? I saw a hand unpinning the brooch and carefully tucking the point away before it was handed to me. It was made from enamel with colored glass and expertly mounted on the wings. A bit of pretty rubbish, really, but it was the only thing that I wanted. Whatever had happened to it. I drifted through her room slowly, examining everything until the sky began to darken. The room had felt tranquil while the sunlight had flooded it, but as these shadows began to grow, I started to feel unsettled. As a child, I had been afraid of the dark. Maybe those feelings were resurfacing because I had been a child the last time I was in here. Whatever the reason, I left the room and locked the door back up again. I didn't sleep well that night. I woke often, plagued by nightmares, and was unable to settle again until I gave in to my old fears and I turned on a lab. In one dream, I was unlocking the door to Grandma's room and there was a scuffing sound from within. I opened the door just in time to see something crawl under the bed. It was dragging a pair of malformed, not-quite-human feet behind it. In another, I was trying to open the wardrobe door, but I couldn't. It didn't feel as though the door was locked, but more like someone was holding it closed from the inside. When I did finally open it, my first action was to plunge my hand in between the hanging dresses. I felt something cold and papery and lumpy that might have been a face. It split open in seconds before I woke, and I felt teeth against my fingertips. The final dream had Grandpa in it. He looked as he did the moment before he had died, but he was standing in front of Grandma's door, barring the way. He was unresponsive, his face blank and inanimate, eyes lifeless. I couldn't bring myself to move him. My nightmares lingered the next day, and it was hard for me to unlock the door to Grandma's room. There was a feeling of foreboding quite aside from the normal trepidation I had felt the first time. I heard no noises, saw no horrible creatures scrabble underneath the bed, and as I left the curtains open the day before, sunlight dispelled the shadows. It was a pleasant room, and I relaxed once I was inside. Dreams were my mind's way of sorting through information. I couldn't let them affect me. I started my work slowly, emptying Grandma's wardrobe one dress at a time. I folded each one with reverence. Even though I remembered very little of her, 
she deserved as much respect as Grandpa had. There were fur coats wrapped in plastic, and I didn't know what to do with them. I went through the pockets of each before putting them in a separate box. I found a handkerchief in one, a spent lipstick tube and an old penny in another. She had had many handbags too, and I found more outdated currency in there. In a small sequined evening bag, I found a tiny key and set it aside in case I found what it belonged to. Around lunchtime, some family members came by to help. For whatever reason, I found myself locking up Grandma's room and pocketing the key, unwilling to let them into our secret, and it did feel like a secret. We hefted boxes and loaded cars together, but all the while I was wishing they would leave so I could carry on my exploration. I slept in the narrow bed in the little room that I had adopted since Grandpa had become ill. I hadn't slept easy since I had ventured into Grandma's room, though I had always slept well before that. I had black nightmares full of terror and confusion that would wake me up in a sweating mess. I started to sleepwalk, something that I hadn't done since I was a child. I often woke up trying to turn the handle to my grandma's room, and I would run back to my own bed in childish terror. When I woke up, I would wash and dress and eat breakfast, and then go back into her room as if those dreams had never happened. I cleared her room slowly and painstakingly. I was looking for the tawdry butterfly brooch that grandma had once given me, on the off chance it had found its way back to her room. It had a familiar yet uncomfortable association that wouldn't leave me alone. I had dreamed about that brooch. It had been a bad dream, but much more innocent than the others. I had dreamed about wearing it on my t-shirt and someone unpinning it. Grandpa had been the one to unpin it. He had seen me wearing it and his face had clotted for a second, something dark behind his eyes. Did your grandma give you that? I felt scared. I thought that he was accusing me of stealing it and I started to cry. He picked me up, kissed my forehead and patted my back, but he took the brooch off me nevertheless. I felt terrible in the dream, as though I had disappointed him and I'd never wanted to disappoint grandpa. He laughed and squeezed me tight, called me a silly sausage, told me that I hadn't done anything wrong but it didn't help. I had evidently done something wrong. It was right there in his face. There were raised voices and I was alone. I stood outside a closed door listening. The doorknob far above my head. What had I done and why was Grandpa angry? I left Grandma's jewelry box till last. Everything else had been labeled and packed but I hadn't been able to put that away yet. I had been half hoping the butterfly brooch would suddenly appear in there if I looked often enough. I don't know why I wanted it so much. Maybe just to validate my memory. I packed the jewelry box with the rest of the heirlooms and I was exhausted. I wanted nothing more to do with my grandma's room. It was stripped bare aside from the large items of furniture and the British Heart Foundation were coming tomorrow to take those away. I was done. We don't take any mattresses. I was haggard from lack of sleep, and as far as I was concerned, the man could have been speaking a foreign language. He must have seen my confusion because he elaborated. 
We'll take the bed frame, but you'll have to dispose of the mattress yourself. It's not hygienic. People won't buy a used mattress. I shrugged. Okay, take the rest then. I'll deal with what's left. He nodded. I turned aside and went to my little room with its narrow bed. I had no wish to see these strangers tramping through my grandpa's home, stripping it of everything that I had ever known, peeling it back to an ordinary house. I heard the men bantering as they moved the furniture, laughing amongst themselves, talking about what they had watched on TV the night before. They didn't mean any harm, but their levity was grating. It was only when it came to moving grandma's old bed frame that the chatter had stopped. A man came to my room and knocked on my door. Excuse me, there's something you missed when you were clearing out, some kind of box. I thought you might want it. I opened the door and the man held a large wooden box, inset with a tiny brass keyhole. It looked expensive, almost definitely an antique, and I admired his honesty. It was under the bed in the flowery room, he said. Couldn't see it unless you crawled under there, to be honest. It looks important, though. I thanked him in earnest, thinking about his words, and I closed the door on the clamor that had restarted. It had been under my grandma's bed, and I couldn't have seen it unless I would have crawled under her. Hmm. Of course, my mind returned to my dreams and the thing which had scuttled under my grandma's bed. But it also returned to the tiny key I recall finding. In a pocket, a handbag. What had I done with that? The men had been forbidden to take any box marked with an accent. After they had gone, I ventured out and began to search. It was in one of the boxes. I was sure of it. I dug through each one as efficiently as I could, taking care not to disrupt the order that I had created. There were countless old receptacles in each box, and any one of them possibly containing the key to the polished wooden box in my room. But twilight reached me before I found my prize, and I ate a solemn solo dinner before retiring for the night. I read a book on a mattress on the floor of my room by the light of a bare bulb before I finally fallen asleep. The dream I had that night was just as disturbing as all the others, if not more. In it, I was searching the house for the key still, rummaging through boxes upon boxes. But in each one, all I found was knitted baby booties filled to the brim. Every box I emptied made my anxiety grow. But I persevered, piling the booties in a corner of my grandma's room until they nearly reached the ceiling. Just before I woke up, I found myself spiraling through the bare rooms, frantic at all the empty boxes, but there was one in my grandpa's room that I hadn't opened. This was probably due to the figure crushed beside it, a hunched over thing that might have been an item of furniture, but which I somehow knew it was not. And although I very much wanted to look in that final box, I didn't want to go near its apparent guardian. When I woke up, Grandpa's room was the first place that I went. It was full of boxes waiting to be distributed amongst the family. But there was one in the corner that I had recognized from my dream. There was no hunched figure crouched beside it, but I still felt uneasy when I had approached it. This box was labeled a question mark, which was what I had put on anything that wasn't immediately identifiable, and I started to sift through the contents. It was the work of a few minutes to find the tiny key, 
which I had sealed into an envelope marked Keys. I had labeled so many things while clearing the house that it was no wonder I didn't quite recall labeling this one. I took the key back to my room and I unlocked the box. There was no ceremony to it. I might have been about to uncover a deeply hidden family secret, but there was no thunder or lightning to accompany my discovery. The box was full of newspaper, yellowed and fragile with age. It wasn't preserved for any historical reason as it was all crumpled up, not folded. It looked more like it was there to serve as packing material. I dug down into the box, pulling out the newspaper. I was expecting documents or photos or an old diary entry or two, but it won't surprise you much that I discovered an old brooch nestled in the bottom. I found that I wasn't surprised either. Part of me had expected it. What I hadn't expected, however, was that the brooch did not depict a butterfly as I had remembered. It was vaguely butterfly-shaped, with wings and the color scheme was familiar enough that I recognized it. But whatever creature it had been created to resemble was not anything that I had seen in nature. It was just as garish and crude as I had remembered, but the clumsiness of its design seemed deliberate rather than due to lack of skill. Despite being a physical object, the lines blurred together in an odd optical illusion, so that no matter how much I stared at it, it never quite came into focus, and seemed to change whenever I turned it. I put it in my pocket. Family members would be arriving soon to move boxes and I didn't want them to see it. Also, looking at it gave me a curiously queasy feeling, as though I were about to get a migraine. We worked all day and at the end of it, the house was empty but for my belongings and my mattress, and my mother asked if I would be going home. She had assumed I would, but I didn't want to. I felt like there was unfinished business here. One more night. I was so tired that I fell asleep without difficulty. I had looked at the brooch again before turning out the light, but I couldn't make any more sense of it. I left it on the narrow ledge of the windowsill next to me and drifted back into the familiar realm of my troubled dreams. You want this? Are you sure? I was little again, sat on Grandma's lap. The jewelry box was open on my own lap, forgotten. The brooch on her dress was far more fascinating. I had remembered this part, but there was more that I hadn't, and it rolled out obligingly for me now. Choose something else, darling, said Grandma. This is for grown-ups. But I want that. My tears had been easy, I wasn't used to Grandma telling me no. Please, Lily, anything else, anything you want. There had been more cajoling, but I had been an expert manipulator as a child, and I could sense Grandma's resolve weakening. I sulked and pouted and begged and cried until she caved in, but even then there was hesitation as she unpinned the brooch. You could have chosen anything, she said, but here, it's yours. I clutched it in my fist, gazing with fascination at the funny face the thing had. Butterfly. Oh, yes, butterfly, pretty butterfly. Come on now, Lily. Would you like a cake? Grandma has baked some. My mother looking horrified when I showed her. Oh my god, Mom. Why has she got that monstrosity? Lily, give it back, it's ugly. But I would not give it back, it was mine. I had won it through determination. My grandmother hung her head. 
She wanted it, she said. Grandpa spotted it next and he looked angry. I thought he was angry at me for nagging Grandma, but he was kind to me. He unpinned the brooch and took it away. I followed him discreetly and listened to Grandma's bedroom door as they had argued within. The doorknob far above my head. Their voices were muffled, but I could make out the odd word. You don't hurt family, Grandpa was saying. Hilda, I, I love you, but not Lily. She's a child, and we said no children, and not family. More indistinct words. It sounded like my grandmother was crying. I'm so tired. I asked for it, begged. I put my cheek against the door to listen closer. Clumsy little kid skull bonking off the wood and the voice inside stopped abruptly. Did you hear that? I didn't wait to see if either of them had. I ran away into the garden to play with my cousins. I remembered all of it now, but still none of it made sense to me. I think that I was awake. I could feel the pillow beneath my head, the covers on top of me. There was even a tickle on my nose that had been a constant companion since starting all the dusty work that I had done. I had to be awake. But my bedroom door was open when I knew that I had closed it. From where I was lying, I had a clear view down the hall. Nearest and to the left was Grandma's room and then Grandpa's room. Straight ahead was the bathroom and to the right was the stairs. There was a broad stripe of moonlight cutting across the banister from the small window by the stairs and it hit Grandma's bedroom door with unnerving accuracy. I had shut her door and locked it, a ritual that I never neglected, and I was glad that I had, because in the depths of the customary nighttime silence I thought that I heard the creak of boards in her room. I closed my eyes, tried to go back to sleep. There might have been the merest judder of the floor beneath my mattress, transferred from the long boards that made up the top floor of the house, but that was likely just my imagination. I listened to my own breathing. It was loud inside my head and very nearly blotted out the noise which was becoming more noticeable the more that I ignored it. A dragging sound. The sound of something that wanted to be heard, but was pretending that it didn't. A crafty noise, slow and laborious and getting closer. I thought of old childhood songs, hymns that I had sung when I was little inside a large echoing room where we had assembly. We had been taught kitty Christian songs about Jesus being a light, and how autumn reminded us of God. I tried to remember the words, anything rather than acknowledge what I was hearing. It was louder now, more insistent. It sounded like the door handle of Grandma's room was rattling. I didn't open my eyes because I didn't want to see if I was right. And anyway, the door was locked. No point in ruining my sleep and seeing something upsetting but harmless. Autumn days when the grass is jeweled and the silken side a chestnut shell. Jet planes waiting in the air to be refueled. All these things I love so well. So I mustn't forget. No, I mustn't forget to say a great big thank you. I mustn't forget. The next verse had mentioned bacon, and I was sure of it. The smell of bacon. I didn't want to hear what I had heard. The door that I had locked opening with a scream of complaining hinges that almost sounded human. The thud of something soft hitting the floor. I opened my eyes then, and it was a mistake. There was a fat shadow outside of Grandma's room, part of it obscured by the doorway. 
It had no real form, but it was undulating where it lay, hunching up into a rounder shape. It reminded me of a cocoon, as if something was struggling inside to get out. A thin, outer membrane bulging from within. It pulled itself from the doorway, and now that I had seen it, I was powerless to look away. I couldn't even close my eyes. I saw all of it, in whatever form it chose now. The end of it tapered into something that could have been legs, although they tapered into points that in no way resembled feet. There were small nubs there, but they waved in the air uselessly as it shuffled along on bent, sharply angular joints that might have been knees. It started to pull itself along the bare boards, unsheathing claws from the folds of itself, digging them into the wood and dragging its body forward. Scrape by scrape, it was coming towards me. Was this sleep paralysis? I mean, it made sense. I had heard all about it and it certainly fit the description. I couldn't move and I was seeing something that couldn't possibly have been there. As it got closer, I could hear the raspy sounds of its breath. It was damp and bubbly, it choked and plummy. It sounded like it was drowning, and I wished that it would do so before it reached me. A face was becoming visible under the cowl of skin or cloth hanging off the front of the thing, but I had no wish to see it. It crawled with a steady menace, broaching the threshold of my room and not stopping till it was within touching distance. I couldn't close my eyes, but I willed them to unfocus. There were tiny muscles that I was still able to command and I used them, blurring the face and getting closer to mine, letting my gaze drift. It smelled like mold and old spunk and wet dust. If cobwebs had a smell we could attack, they would smell like this, I thought. A scaly hand touched my arm and scrabbled across my chest. It had a weight that bellied its skeletal appearance. It used that hand to heave itself on top of me and I let my eyes roll back into my head. I didn't want to see its face. I felt its bulk settle against my ribs, a pressure like a cement block crushing my lungs. It was panting now, breath that should have been hot but was icy cold, stinging the skin of my face. I thought about the smell of bacon as it fastened its lipless mouth over mine and started to suck. I must have passed out or fallen asleep, or switched to another dream. I don't quite know which reality was true. I was dazed and lightheaded when I came to myself. Sucking in air with a pair of lungs that felt flat and rubbery and stupid. I couldn't take a deep breath to satisfy myself. The thing was gone, if it had ever even been there. But in its place, I felt a gentle pressure near my feet that was enough to make me crane my head towards it. There was a man sitting on my mattress. Legs folded awkwardly, but I felt no fear. I recognized my grandpa from photos in which he was younger. He looked very sad. I'm sorry, Lily, he told me. I tried to get rid of it, but she wouldn't let me. I wanted to hide it better, but I didn't know that I was going to get ill so quickly. I tried to sit up, but I was so weak that my arms collapsed underneath me. I heard Grandpa click his tongue in sympathy. Poor girl, he said. It's not pleasant, I know. She told me all about it. For decades it followed her. Sometimes she could get rid of it for years, other times only days. It wore her out. He patted my leg, 
I could feel it through my blanket. She never meant to pass it to you. We had an agreement. No kids and no family. She swore, but she got tired. He leaned over and I managed to raise my head enough to see him. His eyes were wet, but while they offered empathy, there was no real help there. I can't stay for long. They'll notice that I'm gone, but get yourself some oxygen. You'll need it in the mornings. Take a sip or two when you wake up. It's yours now, so take it as much as you can. Pass it on if you feel you're able. You probably won't feel like you can now, but a few years down the line you might change your mind. It weighs in the soul, she said. I wanted to speak. I wanted to ask him so much more, but I didn't have the energy. And he was looking scared now. I have to go. They're looking for me. I'm so sorry, Angel. But just remember what I said. His emblem guides him. He has to follow. But he always returns once the soul is gone. Sleep right, Lily the Pink. He left then, left in an unimpressive fizzle of air occupying the space where he had been, and I was alone with a new dilemma. So far, I've decided that I'll take the creature for as long as I can. After that, who knows? Somebody has to own it. I received a collection of videotapes detailing my brother's disappearance. Written by Kyle Harrison Most children say they want to run away from home, but few ever do it. My brother Joey was definitely in the latter category, using the excuse of freedom and independence to constantly break our parents' rules. He was a dreamer, an adventurer, someone that refused to be tied down by limits, but I never knew how deep his obsession became until last year. Three of his friends, Brad, Robert, and Jeff, had started scouring deep web blogs to find the ultimate getaway spot. Somewhere so remote and off the beaten path that it would allow them to go do whatever they wanted without anyone to judge them. I remember when I saw him chatting away on Discord, he would always say that he wasn't really going to just up and leave for some make-believe fantasy. But that changed after he started reading articles about Andrew Slater. Slater was a nature photographer from central Idaho, with a story that seemed like the opposite to my brother's. A single dad with hardly enough time to keep two jobs, let alone see his kid or even have a social life. Sometime last spring, though, all that had changed for him when his son had gone missing in a stretch of the Sawtooth National Forest. Joey and his friends talked about the case constantly. How Slater had spent three weeks with a posse to try and find his kid, only to emerge from the woods nearly 400 miles from where he had started, a full month later entirely alone. According to Slater, something magical had happened during that period of time. His son captured by an evil force called the Void, and Slater refused to speak to anybody about it unless they took him back there. Most chalked it up to him being some kind of serial killer, having used the woods as a burial ground for his unsuspecting victims, his son being the first one. But not Joey. He had always been a believer in the fantastical and the bizarre. So, one August day, 
he too decided to gather his friends and go out to the forest to complete the picture that Slater had painted for him in his mind so vividly, to go find this mythical beast. Well, what if you don't come back? I remember asking him. Sis, I'll be fine. I wasn't concerned about him finding Faye or even his mysterious void. I was thinking that he was finally using this as a reason to escape responsibility. Hey, if it makes you feel any better, how about I livestream the whole thing? You'll be able to keep an eye on me night and day. Me and the guys, he told me. For some reason, I agreed to that ludicrous notion. Brad and Rob are amateur vloggers anyway, so if anybody could keep the tabs on Joey, it was them. I was sure that my brother would find a reason to explain why his dreams weren't able to come true and call the whole thing off. But instead, what transpired over those next few summer nights was nothing short of a living nightmare. He uploaded his first dream on August 16th, our father's birthday, and made it an interview with Slater himself. As you may have guessed, the local authorities didn't buy his whole. The trees swallowed up my son's story, and he has been spending his time in the county lockup probably going to serve a life sentence at the state penitentiary or worse. Anyway, Joey managed to convince the cops that he was a reporter and got this statement from Slater. For the sake of this account, I've transcribed it here. You're going back there. You think it's that simple, do you, to find the void? Why wouldn't it be? The void only lets those in that it calls. I've read your transcripts with the police. I know the steps it takes to get inside. You don't know a thing. I went in there to rescue my kid. That's why it let me in. But you, you're a trespasser. A thrill seeker. You don't have a purpose other than your own selfishness. And what's wrong with that? Because it'll consume you. You and all your friends. The closer you get, the stronger the pull. Look, I didn't come here to listen to your voodoo crap. Now the cops here have agreed to let you be my guide under a few conditions that I coaxed them into. Do you want to hear them or not? Waste your breath if you want, but I won't be going back there. 1. That you will agree to have a police detail with us at all times. 2. You'll guide us to where your son Ryan is buried. And 3. You will change your confession to guilty so they can get you sent up to the max set quicker. Slater laughed. None of those will even be possible. Well, the first one may be, but the others. Why would I ever agree to that? I don't even know where Ryan is. Well, what if I told you that I did? There is a pause in the recording. I would call you a liar. I searched that entire place of a forest for a month. And I never found him. Not even a trace of him. Well, I've looked into the local legends about the void, gone to the dark web, and I found images, articles on other missing kids. I believe you, Andrew. I believe there's something wicked about those woods. I think I know how to find it. And so then, it has called to you. You're next. What? I've changed my mind. Tell Deputy Jackson that I'll agree to the terms, but I am stipulating one of my own. I want to bring my own camera along. I could probably spend days dissecting that interview, 
wondering whether Joey was lying just to get Slater to cooperate. Realizing how crazy my brother was for asking a convicted criminal to guide him into a supposedly mystical forest to find an ancient Evola, it sounded like something out of an adventure book. None of it made any sense. But Joey was never one to think rationally about these kinds of things. He acted on impulse, and the consequences were always the ones that hurt everyone but him. A few days later, his next dream made me stop dead in my daily routine. Andrew Slater was center stage, a small hunting blade in his right hand and a fresh kill in the other. It took a second for the camera to adjust, and I realized that it was one of the canine units the police had brought. A dozen officers were pointing their weapons at the felon, demanding that he drop his knife, but Slater was so nonchalant it was as if the animal's death had been decided long before they ever made it to this stretch of trees. You wanted passage. Now the bond between our world and the void is stronger. Be thankful the void accepted as such an offering. Last time, one of the team had to take out their own throat and make it across. There was a bunch of murmuring and confusion from his audience. Joey directed the camera toward himself and proved an explanatory monologue. I've tried to capture the essence of Andrew's madness as best as possible. The signal is weak here, though. Honestly, I don't even know if we'll get another chance to speak. I know this was supposed to be foolproof, but we are well past the point of no return, says. I've seen too much to go back now. Slater, I don't know if he's a psychotic or a visionary but he claims this patch of trees is the gateway between our reality and something bigger than the universe itself. My brother paused and started to become emotional. I didn't want to say anything before because I know you don't really believe in ghosts and that stuff, but ever since I saw those photographs and those drawings, the ones that Slater did bring back with them, there were these mangled bodies from the forest. I've been having these dreams... I don't know how to explain it. It's not the normal sort of dream. It's like what happens when you're just listening to the audio cassette or trying to learn a new language. There aren't any images, only voices. At least a dozen swarming voices that make my head feel like it's going to explode. And then I see that thing. The Void Beast. It's stretching its wings like a mutated bat, beckoning me. Behind him, there is a commotion as it seems that Slater has somehow disappeared. He crossed the trees and then faded into darkness, or so the image makes it seem. Crazy, right? That's how it's been since day one. Something about this whole thing. It's like Slater said before. The forest and the creature inside it is calling to me, telling me to come. There's something here I meant to see, and it's just beyond the stretch of trees. My brother sounds different somehow, as if he's under a trance. A few officers are shouting orders, following the path that Slater took, all of them fading into the darkness like it's a fog. Guess this is goodbye. Hopefully not forever. It took a whole two weeks for the other videos to come, and I frantically checked my phone and email every chance that I could. The search and rescue operation was only supposed to take a few days at the most. I knew something was wrong. I could feel it in my bones. The way that Joey seemed infected with the same madness. Maybe they all were. 
Was it possible this strange creature was drawing them nearer as its own namesake had claimed? Well, soon the videos only confirmed it. A nightmare unlike any imaginable happened to those poor men and women, and Joey got to see every glimpse of it. From the body cam of Joey, he's staring down at a body and noting the decay and the ashy skin, trying to determine the age of the corpse, perhaps. One of the troopers moved toward him, tilting his head slightly as he also examined the oddity. They've been dead for a while, he confirmed. A few of the other men also came to look, all of them as equally perplexed by this discovery. Alright, quit your gawking and spread out. Slater couldn't have gotten far. Rob Bart. He was one of the few that refused to get close to the decaying flesh. Where could he have gone? Another officer, one of the few women in the group had asked. I wondered the same thing. He was just in front of him in the last video, and this one seemed to be from the same grove of trees. Whatever sort of trick he played to get us here is probably how he escaped, Brad reasoned. I thought about the corpse and how I felt certain that this facial structure resembled Slater. I wondered if Joey saw the same thing. Maybe we should go check the footage. The officers watched as he started the feed, the image of them all moving toward the forest playing again. Slater was standing there, moving toward the ash to spread the blood across the ground. And then the forest shimmered and Joy remarked, Did any of you notice that? The two men didn't answer and kept watching, as these strange reflections returned and finally Rob muttered off camera, What kind of witchcraft is that? It's this place. I have a feeling that this is the place Slater kept telling me about. The realm of the void. The cop laughed. That's a dumb name. Where did he come up with that? He muttered. I mean, it's weird, that's for sure, but what else did he tell you about it? Another wondered. Nothing except this creature controls people and consumes them. It makes them a part of it, Rob said. The path will be near once you see. What your eyes say cannot be, he added. I remember that being a famous line that Andrew had repeated over and over like it was a chant. The next video skipped forward a few hours near to sunset. So, you really think maybe we aren't where we think we are? A cop had asked. A few of the other officers were returning from their search for Slater without any results. Someone had mentioned that the markers they were using now were suddenly gone, replaced by scratch marks. Are you sure? I could have sworn that I saw a marker a few miles to the east, Joey argued. GPS has been acting a little funny too, a forest ranger added. Brad checked his phone, unsurprised to see that the screen was totally black. Can you lead us to the marker that you saw? Someone asked. Yeah, it should be easy. It was a humongous old birch tree. Joey said as he gestured for all of them to follow him to the east. As the video shook, it felt like I was there listening to these sights and the sounds. As they traveled, I noted that the sun had almost dipped below the horizon and darkness was covering the forest quickly. It gave off a strange orange glow as the last bit of twilight pierced the canopy. How could that be when the timestamp for Joey's dream said that it was mid-afternoon? 
was something playing tricks on them. As they got further into the forest, it got darker until nothing was visible above and I could only hear the sounds of boots crunching leaves. Finally, Joey turned on his flash on the body cam and I could see immediately why the monstrous birch stood out to him. It was wider than anything that could have been in that region of the forest, and a grove of gray and purple flowers covered the forest floor, which made the eerie tree seem a little more frightening for a reason I couldn't quite discern. Joey also seemed to regard them cautiously. He led the video feed around to the opposite side of the tree to show the mark that he was referencing. It was large, like a wild animal had used the bark of the birch to sharpen its claws. We saw the same thing. We sure didn't put it there, Rob muttered. The markings looked like they were too precise for any creature, and they formed what looked like an upside-down capital A, with three lines straight down the middle of the lettering. It looks fresh, maybe a few hours old at the most. Must be campers close by. Brad reasoned, as he looked about the grove. Well, we'll set up camp here tonight, an officer instructed everyone. I could take the dogs and make another sweep, see if we can pick up a slighter scent. They sat in silence for a moment as they waited, and Joey addressed the camera, his viewing audience of one. Sis, all of this feels strange, it shouldn't be this dark. I haven't seen any animals or even any insects. No running water. Everything's off. Slater led us somewhere, but I don't think it's a forest from our world. And I'm not even sure it was really him. I think it was this creature. It wants people to know that it exists. Why? Well, I can't be sure. As he finished talking, the officer with the canine units returned to the grove. It's a bit disorienting out there, sir. The dogs are picking up several scents, but none of that seems fresh, he explained. It's like somebody's dragging a carcass all around the woods. Well, ain't that just it, the commander said, glaring at Joey. A Slater couldn't have gone far. It's dark and this forest has a lot of animals that prowl at night. He'll seek shelter, Rob said. He killed 12 people out there. He's been a ghost before. Joey pointed out. A ghost. Maybe that was what he had been doing all along. I wondered, recalling the corpse. Or maybe, if it was the void creature, taking on his human form to entice others. Come nearer, void. Make us yours. Near to the dead, to be alive. Now we are gone. Part of the hive. That was Rob in the background, humming like a madman. What did it mean? The group settled down around the wide grove, taking out what little gear we had to sleep, and a few of the SWAT officers guarded the exterior in different shafts. Joey kept his light on to illuminate these strange stillness. Despite the calmness of the forest, it felt disturbing to watch, like there was a predator waiting to strike. The next few videos were clearly Joey and his friends talking to different people to get their opinions on the forest and on the void. Is this going to wind up online or something? The woman asked. I've been camera shy my whole life. Can't really say I want any beauty pageants, so forgive me if I don't like to talk. She added. It's strange, man. You know that song that I was singing earlier? Ain't got a clue where I heard it before. It just came to me. 
Brad said. The atmosphere seemed peaceful for a moment, but it didn't last for long. There was a soft chirping echoing across the forest, almost like crickets. But as they all listened, it grew louder and louder, until it seemed to surround the entire grove. Even the cops nervously raised their rifles to see if something might come out of the darkness. And then silence covered everything again. I don't like it here, Rob remarked. Well, I think that makes all of us, the commander said. My brother turned his video feed toward the flowers that had covered the forest floor, trying to relax and focus on their vibrant colors. As Joey kept looking at them, I couldn't help but notice that the tiny petals seemed to flicker back and forth. Joey seemed to notice it as well, then reached down to touch one of the flowers, picking it up and marveling at its simple but elegant beauty. As he kept staring at the petal, I noticed that it flickered again and then it lifted from his finger and fluttered about his hand. It wasn't a flower at all. I thought as I watched the strange small insect glide about. It looks like a butterfly of some kind. The female officer observed as she looked about at the other flowers and noticed they were also starting to shimmer with movement. Maybe we should move somewhere else, Joey observed. Several more of the winged insects spread their shiny wings and lifted into the open air to fly about. There have to be hundreds of them here, the commander realized. Slowly, the chirping noise that we had heard earlier returned to the forest. As Joey kept recording, I saw the butterflies speed up as the noise grew louder, as though agitated by it. Ow! Somebody cried on surprise as one of the insects flew across their upper wrist and cut them. What the? Joey muttered, and then one of the insects sliced across an officer's face like a razor. Several more of the butterflies began to swirl about the group, like miniature fighter jets cutting at them as a perceived threat. We need to move, Joey barked. The swarm was growing larger by the second as they all tried frantically to find cover. I felt my heart beat faster as they ran for cover. The noises grew louder as well, the strange insects furiously attacking all. Behind him, an officer fell to the ground as more of the butterflies swarmed around his body, each one slashing across his exposed skin as they angrily attacked. Rob! Brad shouted as a trooper behind took out his firearm and began to fire at the endless array of insects. It seemed like they were all forming a singular mass. But amid the hollowed shell of the countless butterflies, it was clear that firing on them was simply a waste of ammunition. Joey moved to the other side to try and help Rob. His screams grew louder as the swarm surrounded him. I held my breath and watched as the creatures consumed him like ravenous piranhas, cutting at him relentlessly. They all moved together as one, getting nearer and nearer until the swarm had suffocated. Leave him! The commander called out as the other butterflies rose to join the storm of blood and fury. Rob writhed in pain trying to cover his body and face as much as possible as the butterflies finished their feast. And then the feed slipped to the next video. It was daytime. There were less members of the team now and others with more blood and bruises from the bizarre forest. There was a strange, deep moaning in the background as if the entire woods were chanting that bizarre melody. 
the group was moving deeper into the dark forest. More sounds surrounding them as the SWAT team turned on their night goggles and led them through the maze of trees. All Joey could do was hold onto his camera and use the same type of lens effect and try his hardest to keep up. Something grabbed a hold of his foot and he tumbled downward, his camera slipping from my hands as my brother fell into a mass of wet leaves. From this angle, I saw the canopy and I held my breath. The tops of the trees were made of people's carcasses, their bodies twisted and pushed almost beyond recognition. Food for this supernatural garden. And there amid the feast was this thing, its ghastly wings spread impossibly wide, its glowing eyes mesmerizing my brother. It leapt toward him for the kill. The feed went black again. Somehow, the group had returned to the grove, but the massive birch was now gone. Brad was the one filming now. Had something happened to my brother, I had no choice but to watch and find out. There in the shiny gray mass of flowers, I could make out what remained of Rob's body, and the female officer took off her helmet to honor her fellow comrade. The constant song from the forest had the few remaining officers agitated. Was it making them turn on one another? The next clip showed what I had feared the most. Joey was a victim as well that now his carcass seemed to be host for some new life. Brad zoomed in into the open wounds that my brother's body was swollen near to his abdomen and his thighs as though the bites from the insects had caused some sort of allergic reaction. Now me turn him over, a voice said trying to sound professional. I saw only a handful of officers left. I heard bones crack and under the unsettling noise another strange sound, like something moving. Brad looked at the pallid face and eyes and I was left wondering if the void had taken control of his body. And then I watched in shock as small green worms began to wriggle their way out of his open mouth. Claire, Brad said pulling the officer away. She saw them as well and Joey's face became more swollen as the worms split his skin open sliding down across his pale cheek and making soft screeches in the morning air. Brad shut off the camera again. I found myself hyperventilating. Those creatures were the larvae of the forest, seeking out new hosts to come and be infected, devouring all life. It took all my strength to click the final video, but I needed to know where this ended. Brad was examining a bag that had Slater's name tag, and then I realized it was the photographer's son backpack. The void was suddenly watching in the lens reflection as Brad flipped through the contents of the bag. The first item was a photograph of a group sitting around a campfire. All of them were wearing a logo connected to what looked like a scouting program. Slater was in the picture and despite his age, he looked the same. Other faces looked familiar. Rob and Jeff were in there too. They said they didn't know anything about Andrew, and guess that was another lie, or maybe the void is creating this narrative now, making its own story. Brad told the camera as it focused on the image of the two together at the camp alongside Andrew. The picture looked unfinished. Next, there were some news articles that he held up to the camera to give viewers a chance to read. A southern college student that had applied for a film class had disappeared over the weekend of September 13, 1998, with no clues to suggest where she went. The studio in question, 
Fusia Entertainment was later found to be a shell corporation. They were creating a movie based on the void. I can't really explain where I got the idea for the legend, the director said in the interview. It just sort of came to me the other day. I felt like I was a child again experiencing my first boogeyman when I had sketched it out. I felt like I was being guided somehow, he explained. The movie was never finished due to the college student disappearing, but no evidence ever linked them to the girl's disappearance. Several of the other articles that Slater's son had related to missions involving the Navy or Homeland Security, an experimental bioweapon to use the void against terrorists. It makes itself become what they fear. It creates itself and it feeds off of itself. It's a self-perpetuating monster, the report had said. Then, there was one about a clinic that got shut down in Utah for questionable practice. A doctor that was on the run for illegally selling prescriptions, stuff that made people have hallucinations. Brad was examining the picture of the scouts closely again. It's these same number of victims Slater brought them here. These patients are the ones that first made a connection to this void. As though hearing its name evoked its strength, I heard the ungodly beast scream in the background and the picture started to fade, to become a part of the forest too. Nothing here is real, Brad realized as he touched the ground. His lens focused on the central part of the grove, where the tree had once stood and tried to touch it. It looked like he was pressing against something invisible. The tree was still there, cloaked like a weapon. There was a throng of voices around him as he too began to fade away. The path is set. Your guide awaits you. Mourn for those who come, for those who were before shall be found again. Who was he talking to? I saw that strange creature bound off into an empty landscape, and then the video ended and I found myself numb and confused. What had happened to my brother? The strange story these videos told haunted me. I showed the videos to the police, but they didn't believe my story said that it was a hoax from a sickle that likely had killed a good cops. I know I'll need to go to this strange forest and see for myself. I suppose you could even say that I heard the void calling to me too. I mean, I can't stop thinking about it. I'm nearly at the grove now where Slater took them to a world behind, and I see the sun going over the western edge of the tree line behind me. I can hear the creature calling out for my blood. I take the first step in the direction my brother went, into a forest of magic and danger, a place that doesn't exist except to destroy. It felt as though if it were right, the path that I was meant to be on, but I can't say for certain why. I just know I have to go. I work for a county sheriff's office in Maine. Here's why my job sucks. Written by XX. Each and every year, thousands of people vanish or go missing under mysterious circumstances. Most cases are average and solvable, or at least there's a reasonably logical explanation for what had happened. For example, People go hiking and get lost. People are killed in disputes over illegal activities. People purposefully hurt themselves in remote places and so on. However, 
Just occasionally, authorities will stumble across the unexplainable, where any reasonable answer is defied by the evidence, and there are more questions than answers. In these cases, we are forced to call in outside help for the investigation. And this is something that few of us will ever speak about because the people that we are required to call aren't exactly who you would want to hear about investigating a potential crime scene. In fact, they will almost never show up in any trial notes. We do our best to play off any information they give us, or to find the information ourselves some other way. At the time this happened, I was a new officer assigned to a middle-of-nowhere tourist town in Maine. Virtually nothing ever happened there. The crime rate was so low that our station was essentially nothing more than a glorified log cabin. In the past, there had been some pretty horrific massacres and a couple of intriguing cases that remained unsolved. The only time that it gets even mildly busy now is during the late spring to early fall, hiking season. One tourists show up in droves. It's like the zombie apocalypse. Only there are sweaty guys trying to impress their partners with the stamina they clearly don't have. And middle-aged women angry at nature itself instead of zombies. Personally, I think I would prefer it if zombies wanted to hike this section of the Appalachian Trail that passes our town. Sheriff Barrett was my chief back when I was a rookie. He was a grumpy old man with a gray mustache, thinning hair and a no-nonsense attitude. There weren't more than a handful of us officers. I was the youngest and most inexperienced, so no one really paid me any mind. And Diane was the only woman in our station. She was a friendly, plump lady. She was also an officer, though she mostly handled the receptionist work rather than field patrols. Anyway, I digress. What I'm going to share with you is the first major case that I ever caught, and the reason that my job sucks. This happened in late spring of 98. It was a perfect year. Up until then, we had had no noteworthy incidents. Because I was new, my assignment was to patrol up and down a section of the trail leading up to the mountain. I was basically doing the work of a park ranger, ensuring the trail was clear of debris checking on campers and assisting with any injuries that hikers had sustained. It was a boring assignment. There's only so many sprained ankles that one can show enthusiasm for, as you can imagine, but I didn't mind it too much. I was outside in the fresh mountain air, and the surroundings were pristine. Everything was a lush green. There was a light, cool breeze filtering through the forest and the nearby wildlife was vibrant. I put it along slowly on my ATV. I didn't want to scare or squash any wildlife since there were countless lizards and small mammals that would scurry into hiding as I passed by. Overhead, birds sang and I was stopped often by tourists asking for directions and or photos. Apparently local law enforcement is exciting. Or maybe they just liked a man in uniform, who knows. When the call came in over the radio, it seemed pretty mundane. Hey, Charles, we've got a report of some campers due back that haven't returned. And do you think you could go take a look? Over. And Diane's cheerful voice had informed. She told me the approximate coordinates and a description while I made my way to the location. 
The group in question was supposed to be a group of nine, four adults and five children. The youngest member was 14 and the eldest was 51. It was a party of two families. As I approached the area, the forest around me gradually became still and silent. I didn't even notice at first, but soon the bird songs had stopped entirely. The only sound was the hum of my ATV and the crunching of twigs under the tires. It was eerie to say the least. I rode into the clearing that the group was supposed to have camped and I shut off the engine. I could feel it in my bones that something just wasn't right. The atmosphere in that place seemed heavier somehow. The sun still shone, but it was as if the air itself was now an oppressive forest. Looking around, I could see evidence that the group had been there. Patches of grass were flattened from tents and there were footprints in the dirt. A few odd things of note were that the fireplace was still smoldering slightly. It was against camping policy to leave any active fire unattended, and there were no personal effects left anywhere. You would expect that a group who couldn't be bothered dampening their fire would also be the kind of people to leave behind litter of some kind. You know, clothing, beer bottles, cans, etc. But there was nothing. Not a shred of anything anywhere. It really felt as if these people and everything they had brought with them simply evaporated. The logical part of my brain told me that they probably just moved on and had forgotten about the fire. However, if that was the case, why didn't they return yet? I came from the only direction that one can travel to return down the mountain and I didn't pass any groups matching the description that I was given. As I investigated further, I noticed that an area of the brush seemed to have been damaged, squashed a bit as if people had moved through it. I wondered then if they had decided to go hiking off the marked trail, and had called for backup before following the path of broken foliage. I didn't walk long before I noticed something bright blue high up in the trees ahead. I'm Officer Charles, can anyone hear me? I announced, but no response. A little jarred by this, I proceeded with slightly less confidence. The bad feeling that I was getting only intensified. I began to think the worst. What if it was a person hanging dead in the tree? I hadn't actually seen a dead body in person before. When I reached the object in question, I realized that it was a tent. Somehow, it had become entangled 30-odd feet up in the tree. How? I had no idea. Hello? Is there anyone in the area? This is Officer Charles. Please make your presence known. I called again loudly, but still no response. Transfixed, I stared at the tent. It moved slightly in the breeze, and I felt a chill run down my spine. It really was a very odd place for a tent to be. No way the wind could have blown it up there. Someone had to have placed it there. But why? There was nothing around. Or so I thought. I began to feel watched and had the sudden urge to look around me. There was nothing. However, the crackle of my radio coming to life on my shoulder at that second scared me half to death. Hello, Charles, it's Diane. I'm sorry that no one is available for backup. Can you please advise on your location? Over, she asked. Hey, yeah, I'm just a little ways off the campsite. I found a tent in a tree quite some ways up. 
I don't know how I got up there. No sign of the group. I don't think I'm going to need backup after all. There's no one here. Over. I responded after taking a moment to regain my composure. Hmm, that's a little odd. We'll keep us updated. Stay safe. Over. She instructed. Yes, ma'am. Over. I grinned to myself. Somehow just hearing somebody else's voice was comforting. I continued down the path, passing by the tree with the tent, and walking until I came across a river. The edges of the river were muddy with obvious signs of multiple people crossing it. I could make out distinctive shoe imprints and something else. I really didn't know what it could be. It honestly looked to me like a dinosaur footprint. I took out my camera to take a few pictures for evidence and I used a dollar bill for scale. The print was huge, well bigger than the dollar. I scanned along the length of the river to see if I could tell where they might have exited on the other side. There didn't seem to be any worn-down areas visible from where I stood, so I walked down a stream a ways. I assumed that if they traveled in the river for whatever reason, that it would be easier to move with the current rather than against it. Along the way, I saw more of the strange footprints. Some seemed to have had three toes and others four. Two different animals, maybe. And then I began to find items. First, I found a shoe and then cooking pots, clothing, and a partially torn sleeping bag. The further I went, the more common the items became. I called out at frequent intervals, making sure to give pause to listen for any response. No one ever answered. I felt that this was more than campers getting excited and exploring. This was people running for their lives from something. I followed the river more urgently until it started to get dark. I knew that I needed to turn back or I might end up getting lost myself. But reluctantly, I made the decision to head back to the clearing. I intended to return to the office and explain in greater detail what I had seen so a rescue effort could be coordinated. I passed the tent tree and left a note there just in case the campers came back and then I called Diane on the radio. Diane, I'm almost back at the ATV now. Over, I reported. Officer Charles, where have you been? I've been trying to reach you, why didn't you answer? Over. She sounded angry and I felt my palms start to sweat. I was still probationary. Was I going to be fired for this? I followed the river. I found supplies and some strange footprints. I took photos over. I tried to explain myself rapidly. I hadn't heard my radio go off at any point while I was searching. I assumed maybe it has been out of range while I was exploring. Good to know that if I had fallen into the river or something, I would have been totally on my own. What kind of animal prints did you find? Over. She asked calmer this time but the mildly annoyed tone remained. I'm not sure. They were big, though. Maybe some kind of bear or something. Over. I tried. I knew without a doubt that this wasn't what they were, but I didn't want to seem like I had wasted time or didn't know what I was doing. Just come on back now. The sheriff wants you back before it's dark. Hurry. Over. She stated tensely. The directions were sharp and left. No room for interpretation. I think this kind of freaked me out more because I could tell that there was something she was withholding. When I got back to the original clearing, 
I saw immediately that my ATV was knocked over. The sight of seeing it laying there in the dirt made me want to run. That ATV was a four-wheeler and nearly 700 pounds. No way someone just accidentally had pushed it onto its side. I jogged over to correct the ATV's spatial positioning. I didn't want to seem scared or run, but walking felt too slow. I started up the ATV and that's when I heard it. From only a few hundred meters away, an inhuman scream erupted from the forest behind me. It was deafening. It had only been a single short sound, but it reverberated low and long through the trees. All the hair on the back of my neck stood on end. I had never heard anything remotely comparable. Without a doubt, no known animal made that sound and you can bet your bottom dollar that I made my way back to the main office freaking quick. When I arrived, Sheriff Barrett was waiting for me, standing with his arms folded watching the horizon. I felt like a teenager caught sneaking home. You made it back. He stated gruffly and for the briefest moment, I thought that he looked relieved to see me. Someone knocked over the ATV and I heard something in the forest. I tried to speak calmly while at the same time trying not to shake like a leaf. All the adrenaline in me that had kept me going was starting to wear off and my knees felt weak. I think you could probably tell from the look in my eyes how terrified I had been. What'd you see out there? He asked me more quietly. I, I don't know, Sheriff. The reported camping site was empty, though it's likely that the group had stayed there. When I investigated further, I found an unofficial trail that led deeper into the woods. I believe the party moved in that direction, as I found a tent tangled in some trees that way. I don't know how they got it up so high, but I followed their path along the river. I found some of their personal effects and documented large footprints. I took photos. I spoke as clearly as I could. I was trying to explain and demonstrate my quick thinking. Show me the photos. He answered with a vague nod of acknowledgement to the rest of my story. Hurriedly, I pulled up the camera to show him. He took it and silently clicked through the photos with an ever-deepening frown on his brow. Should we call the neighboring county to organize a search and rescue? I asked hesitantly. No, it's too late in the day for that now. No one searches in those woods after dark. If they're alive out there, they'll have to survive the night on their own. He said grimly as he turned in his heel to walk back inside. Diane, call Linnaeus. It's back, he called ahead. Charles, you go home, and make sure to lock your doors tonight. You see anything move outside, you call me, you got it. He called back to me without breaking stride. I got the distinct feeling that I had definitely done something wrong, even if the only wrong that I had done was simply having been out there at all. There were things they weren't telling me and I wanted answers. I didn't know who Linnaeus was. I had never heard the name before, or how or why you would be able to help. However, what bothered me the most was not knowing. Now understanding what was out there, what exactly is in those woods? When I came into the office the following morning, the atmosphere was tense. Diane sat stiffly at her desk, her usual cheerfulness replaced by a displeased, lips-pursed expression. Though she did give me a sly smile as I set down the box of donuts on the corner of her desk, 
Hope you're ready for this, kid. She commented as she eyed a jam-filled pastry. Hey, you know me, I'm ready for anything. I assured a little too enthusiastically, trying to inject some life back into the room. Where is Sheriff Barrett? I queried. In his office, knock first, she told me flatly. I muttered a half-hearted, right, and headed past the reception to the sheriff's office. As I walked, I contemplated what new development on yesterday's disappearances could have soured the mood so dramatically. Did they find a body? Or was it all just a wild goose chase that put Barrett in a bad mood for wasting his time? The door to his office opened abruptly just before I had made it to it, and Barrett came marching out. Well, I hope you're wrong, but I didn't call you here for no reason. He was speaking firmly to someone behind him. It's rare that I would be incorrect. An unfamiliar voice answered in a disturbingly neutral tone. No, oh, Charles, you're an early. Good. I want you to meet Eric Linnaeus. The sheriff told me, noticing my presence for the first time when he turned away from his office. Behind him, another man followed. This man was of average height, reasonably handsome with dark hair and was well-dressed. He seemed to be on the younger side, maybe early 20s. So I was surprised to see that despite his young appearance, he walked with a lamp. His arm was bandaged in a sling close to his body, so the right sleeve of his jacket hung empty, and he relied on the cane in his left hand to walk. Taken back, I didn't realize that I was staring until he made eye contact with me. My blood turned to ice. His right eye was sliced, or at least that was my initial thought. Looking closer, I realized that it was more like some abnormal form of heterochromia. To give you some idea, his left eye seemed normal-sized and was blue in color, but his other eye was slightly enlarged. The whites of that eye were more purpley and had a dark slit through the center where the iris should have been. It's not polite to stare, Eric informed me in monotone. His face gave no human emotion to connect with. I couldn't tell if he was embarrassed, angry, or hurt, but I felt guilty nonetheless. Uh, sorry, I'm Charles. I apologized and I introduced myself. So, you're the one who discovered the abandoned campsite. He stated rather than asked. I nodded. Take me to the location. We will search anew from there. He continued as he moved toward the door. I hesitated. I wasn't sure whether or not I was supposed to take orders from this man. Do as he asks, you might learn something from him. In fact, consider him to be your new team lead from today until this matter is resolved. I want nothing to do with it. Sheriff Barrett muttered the last part, mostly to himself. We took the ATV out to the area where the campers had disappeared. Of course, the trail was by now closed since the disappearance and so travel was a lot faster since I didn't have to worry about running over any tourists. The clouds from the day before had stayed, though it wasn't raining as they cast a gloomy haze over the forest and the air was muggy. It was the perfect weather for bugs but the entire area was eerily silent. No birds or bugs made any sort of sound. It was like entering a dead zone where only the whir of the ATV engine broke the silence. So, Sheriff Barrett called you in. Have you had special experience with this kind of case? I asked to make light conversation. 
Eric was quiet for a moment before answering carefully. You could say that. I'm surprised then you seem so young. I commented with a laugh. I'm older than I look. He answered plainly. Right, well, are you sure that you'll be okay out there? I mean, the terrain is kind of rough. Truthfully, I had my doubts about how he would be able to follow the camper's supposed direction. When I let off trail and he was obviously injured. I'll be fine. How did you get hurt anyway? If you don't mind my asking, you talk too much when you're nervous. It's like a chattering monkey. He cut me off bluntly in my mouth, a snapshot. It's true that I did tend to talk more to release nervous energy, but a simple, I don't want to talk about it, would have sufficed. That was probably the moment that I decided that I didn't like him. His strange monotone and lack of human emotion bothered me, especially in the unsettling ambience of the forest. It was almost like he took on the personality of the forest, or like it took on his. When we arrived at the abandoned site, everything was how I had left it the day prior. Silent, empty, and oddly terrifying. Eric struggled off the ATV and began to hobble around the space while I radioed back to let the sheriff know that we had made it to our destination. You be careful out there now, he warned in a hard tone. You stay near Linnaeus in case anything happens, you understand me? Over. Copy that, over. I grumbled. It felt a little bit like I had been assigned a babysitter on a job that I was more than capable of handling on my own. Still begrudging, I hopped off the ATV to follow Eric. Walking over the trampled site was eerie. The sound of that inhuman scream came back to me in my thoughts and I felt the tickle of fear creeping into my body. Ahead, Eric was headed down the same path that I had traveled the day prior. There's a tree with a tent caught high in the branches. There's about where I found the footprints. I spoke as I moved over to him. I can see it, but the rain has probably washed away any footprints, he answered. Unfortunately, he was right. There is no sign of any path past the tent tree. The storm that blew through during the night had disturbed whatever evidence may have been left, and I doubted we could track anything specific now. This is why it surprised me when Eric continued on. He stumbled with his cane through the brush to the river where he had stopped to look around. You said you found items scattered about downstream but no signs of exiting footprints. He asked as he awkwardly crouched down to inspect the river's edge. Yeah, if they went into the river, I never found the spot where they had exited. I only found some more of those strange prints down that way. I pointed downstream. Did you travel upstream? He asked without looking up from the river. No, I admitted. Perhaps I was imagining a disappointed eye roll or some other indication of a disapproval, because he simply stood up and started making his way upstream without saying another word. We traveled for quite some time, and there didn't seem to be any kind of indication that the missing campers had come this way and I was surprised at how nimbly Eric was able to make his way along the uneven surface beside the river. Progress forward had stopped when we had reached the base of a large waterfall. It seemed unlikely that anyone would try to climb over it, so I assumed the campers must have gone downstream after all. That or there really was no way to tell now where they had exited. They left the water here, 
Eric announced a few meters away from the base of the waterfall. How can you tell? I asked skeptically. Eric paused a moment now, as if he were deciding what exactly he should tell me. It's just a very good guess, it seems logical. He shrugged. And I'm just supposed to go with that? I asked flatly. Yes. He answered simply, and began to make his way off into the woods. I didn't answer. I followed because I knew that I had no choice in the matter. If he was my team leader for the time being, it was my responsibility to follow his lead without argument. However, it was now in my opinion that he had no idea really of what he was doing. He was probably just some hotshot that had lied in his resume, and we would be lost within an hour. So when, after less than 15 minutes, we found a stuffed teddy bear amongst the foliage, I felt my pride shrivel up. It seemed Eric did know what he was doing. Have you ever seen a dead body before? Eric asked me calmly as he picked up the bear. No, I admitted. Why? It seems likely that we'll come across the body soon. Please do your best to prepare yourself for such an event, he said carefully. Something in the way he said it almost made me feel like he already knew we were going to find someone dead. There was no doubt to his dry voice. I began to imagine what we would find. The child that owned this teddy bear. Their parents, their siblings. Most likely huddled together somewhere they thought was sheltered for the night. Only for the elements to overcome them. How was I going to explain to the families that... I could have saved their loved ones if only I had traveled upstream yesterday. Charles. Eric speaking interrupted my thoughts and I felt my stomach drop. Ahead the trees were thinning into a small clearing, and I could see bright colored patches in the space. I didn't need to be told. I could tell they were campers' clothing, but I didn't want to consider what if there were people still inside the clothes. You can wait here if you would like. Eric told me more softly. I cleared my throat. No, it's dangerous to separate. I told him, trying to sound as uncaring as he did. Very well. He answered and stumbled onward. What we found in that clearing was worse than I could have ever imagined. The clothing that was visible through the trees did indeed contain bodies. But they were not huddled together for warmth. No, they had been gone longer than that. Their bodies were strewn all about the clearing, torn and mangled. They laid with varying expressions of fear and pain. The worst one for me was the little girl. She couldn't have been more than 14. We found one of the arms on the opposite side of the clearing. It was only identifiable because of the size and because it was still in the yellow sleeve of the jacket her torso was wearing. Aside from all that, all the bodies were common in another way. They were all missing their eyes and tongues. The smell was surprisingly bearable. I guess they hadn't had too much time to fester, but still I felt nauseous. Take a moment. Go sit over by the edge away from all this. Eric told me firmly. I wanted to argue. I wanted to prove myself, but the swallowed breakfast threatening to make its return from my stomach subdued me. The first time you see a dead body, it changes you in profound ways. When your first time is seeing other humans, people with lives, thoughts, feelings, and emotions torn apart, decimated in the way these bodies were well, they leave a scar on your very soul. 
I started to understand Eric more than. He wasn't just an average guy. He was someone who had seen this kind of thing often enough that it had worn away his entire humanity. I'll call this in. I murmured, trying to settle my stomach as I watched Eric investigate each body part. No, until we find the animal responsible, it's safer if there are fewer people on the mountain. He said calmly. What kind of animal did this? I asked meekly. When he answered this time, he didn't look up from the partially eaten, severed leg at his feet. No animal you would be familiar with. It's a product of evil. A demon of sorts. When Eric had told me a demon was responsible for the slayings, I burst out laughing. It was brought on by a combination of my nerves and my genuine belief that he was joking with me to lighten the mood. The outburst of laughter evaporated as Eric's flat eyes turned to me. I knew by then that his expression never changed, but I could have sworn he was contemplating killing me or something. There was a silent fury burning there, or maybe nothing at all. Shark eyes, that's what he had. After my outburst, I coughed awkwardly and settled into silence. Eric continued whatever it was that he was doing, examining the bodies, taking photos, and gathering samples. I assumed those were to be used as evidence. We stayed in that clearing for quite some time with the victims. In my head, I played out various scenarios of what I thought might have happened. I imagined the group fleeing terrified in the darkness, running blindly through the foliage with low tree branches catching at their clothing and hair. I thought of one of them the morning before, packing up their campsite and heading off on an unmarked trail. Maybe they saw something of interest that lured them in that direction. Then realizing their danger running until they met the river, frantically deciding which way to try to run next. One of them must have decided to run downstream, perhaps to deceive whatever had pursued them. I imagined them later in darkness, holding on to each other desperately, trying to stay quiet in their chills and hiding places. But maybe they never even made it to the first night. Maybe all the terror that I imagined never happened. Perhaps whatever it was that set upon them was so efficient that they never even had time to be afraid at all. Eventually, I called it in over the radio that we had found multiple casualties, and Diane assured me that once the mountain was safe, they would send in rescue workers to recover the bodies. More time passed and it began to rain. It was only a light misting of water that settled a dampness over clothing and left a small droplets forming on leaves. This is when Eric limps back over to me. His cane sank slightly into the damp earth as he leaned on it. You can go back now if you would prefer. He stated, though it came across as an instruction. It's probably against policy to leave when there's some man-eating animal around. I answered gloomily. Perhaps... He answered after a moment's pause, and I noticed for the first time a smile was starting to form on his lips as he continued. However, you are welcome to leave, nonetheless. I felt my blood boil. This guy was implying that I leave because he thinks I can't handle this situation. Yeah, I might be new to the job, but at least I look old enough to shave. I stood and looked him square in his good eye. I don't need to run home if that's what you're suggesting. I told him firmly. 
Very well. Come. He said simply moving off into the forest. It's against the procedure to leave a crime scene unattended. I called after him, utterly peeved at his nonchalant arrogance. So stay, he shrugged. My job requires that I continue on. You don't think that I was called here simply to give a nod of approval that this is a dangerous animal you have here, now do you? What exactly is your job again? I retorted. To eliminate the threat, he answered bluntly. Frustrated, I said nothing more and followed after him into the forest. I knew this was against procedure, but he was my leader for the day and out his procedure to follow the orders of a direct leader. Those orders were vague at best. He was following some distinct trail I couldn't determine. It was almost like following a native tracker, except they tended to at least explain what they were looking for or following. This man walked sharing his navigation turning at different points with seemingly no indication as to why. I began to think that he was actually lost and just trying to keep up appearances. But then I noticed that his damaged eyes seemed to be seeing or looking. If nothing else, it was definitely moving independently from his good eye. And whichever way it looked in, he moved to follow that direction. A chill ran down my spine. That was certainly one of the creepiest things that I had ever seen. It's within all human instinct that things that look human but not deeply unsettle us. And I was beginning to have my doubts about just how human this man was. That's not to say I believe in anything supernatural. More that I believe humanity can leave a person. After a few hours of hiking through the woods and beating up the shrubbery, Eric stopped. He set his can aside and, to my infinite surprise, began unbandaging his damaged arm. What on earth are you doing? I had asked dumbfounded. My job. He replied without elaborating. Under the bandages, his arm was an odd purple-black color similar to his bad eye. It was bumpy in a weird way and seemed to have what I can only describe as scales on it. His hand was disproportionately large with long claws where his nails should have been. He flexed it casually opening and closing his hand as if he hadn't done so in quite some time. I recoiled in horror. Stumbling backwards, I nearly fell over a fallen log. I couldn't make sense of exactly what I was seeing. Had this guy had some serious body modification surgery or something? Was he a monster like that in a children's story? I settled on the first option as he grinned over at me. This was the first time I had seen him smile and fall and I immediately noticed why he didn't smile with teeth normally. The teeth on the right side of his face below his purple eye were all oversized and pointed. His gums were the same discolored purple as his eye. Scared, he mused. What, what the heck did you have done? I stammered out, too in shock to think of anything else to say. Why, I assume I did it by choice. He asked instead, clearly amused. I told you that you were welcome to remain with the bodies. Even when he spoke now, his voice was still dull, devoid of emotion, and that was far more unsettling. If you're going to shoot me, aim well. I don't take kindly to that reaction. He warned, and I realized then that I had unholstered my gun. I couldn't remember even doing that, but I was gripping it tightly as my thoughts collected themselves in my head. 
it was starting to make sense. Eric was the one. He had done that to those campers. That's why he knew which way they had run. That's how he knew to follow the trail that I couldn't find. He was a killer with some horrific body modifications. He probably got off on the fear people had at seeing his appearance. They probably thought that a demon had come for them. I struggled to figure out some way to gain the upper hand in this situation. He had all the advantages. He had led me further out in the woods for hours, and it was going to be dark soon and I didn't carry as many rounds in me as I should have. I work in a recreational park for God's sake. I'm not likely to need that many bullets. Who would even thought I would be sent out with a psycho? I felt a slight stab of betrayal when I thought more about that. Did Diane and Barrett know about Eric? Both had looked displeased to see him. Was I a sacrifice here? Were they all in on it? My thoughts were interrupted suddenly then by a familiar chilling screech. The same one that I had heard the night before, only it was closer, much closer. I noticed then that Eric wasn't really even looking at me. His attention was focused on something past me. A wave of nausea washed over me as I slowly turned toward the sound. The creature that made it was crouched barely 20 feet away from me. It was the size of a bear and had no face. Instead, it only had a mass of teeth that extended ridiculously far back into its skull, with a patch of wrinkled skin on top of its head where a human might have hair. Despite this somehow, I felt as though it was watching me. The wrinkles on its head suddenly flared open and I realized it was taking a deep breath in. It then turned more whole bodily toward me, focusing its malice on me. Not going to shoot it, Eric mocked calmly. His voice cut through the tension like a sharp knife. I had forgotten about him for a moment. Truthfully, when facing something that defied all reason, I felt a primal terror so pure that I can't even accurately describe it. My mind struggled desperately to rationalize this thing that was absolutely nothing alike to anything that I had ever before experienced nor even heard of. Time seemed to slow down for me because I remember the next few details extremely vividly. First was how calm Eric looked. It was like he was looking at something as common as a household dog. Second was that when the creature jumped at me, its entire body uncoiled horrifically. It had no tail but folds of skin along its sides between its limbs flared open so that it glided on makeshift wings. I didn't have time to scream or even the time to raise my weapon, but somehow Eric suddenly stood between the creature and myself. He shoved me back hard and I fell into the mud. I heard my gun go off just once as I landed because my finger had slipped on the trigger. I have no idea where the shot went. I was too busy watching the scene before me unfold. I was certain that Eric was about to be dismembered by this beast when he raised his disfigured arm. Putting it between himself and the creature, he slashed through the thing mid-flight like a knife through butter. Blood sprayed in all directions over him, over me, and over the surrounding vegetation. It landed in two separate pieces with individual impacts. The chunks twitched writhing on the ground as if the thing were still alive and trying to reassemble. In the cold air, steam rose from the pieces and the soft rain expanded the blood pooling exponentially. When I regained my voice, I stammered out, What was that thing? 
I don't give them names. Eric answered, now cradling his monster arm in his good arm. Now get up, I want to get back before midnight. For a few more moments, I was too stunned to move. And when I tried to stand, my legs gave way twice before I succeeded. They felt like jelly. I wanted to ask more questions, but I couldn't find the right words to form the sentences. So I merely followed Eric's lead and began walking back. I noticed that he now walked without a limp and without his cane. It hung in the crook of his elbow instead. I thought better of asking about it though, especially given that half an hour prior, I had been about ready to shoot him. Merrick and I walked back into the office like zombies, damp from the rain, covered in blood and dirt. Sheriff Barrett looked up from his newspaper and scoffed. Uh, cover that thing up, he grumbled, obviously referring to Eric's demon arm as he tossed him a fresh roll of bandages. Eric caught the roll effortlessly with an amused look on his face. Always a warm greeting, he commented as he began to rewrap his limb. Is it alright if I put in my incident report tomorrow? I asked to break the tension. No, Sheriff answered gruffly. No, I echoed disappointed. No, I don't want to see any report on this. I don't believe in any of that mumbo-jumbo stuff. I don't want to hear another word on it, actually. What are we supposed to tell the families? I asked, trying to subdue the irritation in my voice. I had risked my life for this assignment. Diane has prepared the report for you. Read it. Repeat what it says if anybody asked you. He instructed. Somehow that didn't surprise me. I thought back to the few rare cases in the past. I couldn't help but wonder if each was a similar situation to the one that I just experienced. I wondered also about when the next time another incident would happen. Would I be able to return to my normal duties while thinking about that thing out there? About whether or not there were more of them? It made me anxious to think about the next time a hiker disappeared or a campsite was found abandoned. Would the explanation be something normal, or would we be calling Eric Linnaeus again? I shuddered at the thought. I didn't want to see his arm again anytime soon. As it was, Eric left silently without any of us noticing. He vanished from our little office and melted into the darkness like a ghost. I was relieved when I realized that he had gone, but also slightly guilty. I realized that everybody probably felt that way about him, relief when he was gone. I imagined him walking alone in the rain. Perhaps he would go home, or maybe he would move on to the next call to help in facing some unexplained phenomena. The man had saved my life, and probably the lives of others as well. I should have at least thanked him. I asked my best friend to tell me the scariest thing that had ever happened to him. Written by Sapphire Lion 15 Nate and I were at his parents' cabin in Ontario. To celebrate the start of summer, we had both taken a week off of work and planned a four-day vacation of nothing but hiking, biking, canoeing, and enjoying a break from our hectic lives in the city. I honestly don't remember much of the vacation itself. It was a lot of fun for sure, but we did so much of the same stuff that it all sort of blurred together. Whenever I think of that trip, the only thing I remember is that conversation. 
probably because I want so desperately to forget it. We had finished a simple but tasty dinner of hot dogs and potato chips. We both wanted beers, but we had blown through what we had brought with us. It was raining with the occasional thunderclap. I thought it was peaceful. We were sitting in front of a roaring fireplace, working through a pot of coffee. It was dark and fairly late, but neither of us felt like going to bed, probably because of the coffee. So, we ended up talking. The first few minutes of our conversation were nothing noteworthy, just small talk. Somehow, I have no idea how. The conversation turned to some of the weird animals that we had seen during the trap. Nate brought up how, while we had been hiking the day before, a snake had slithered across the trail, most likely startled by us. I had let out a very unmanly scream and jumped about a foot in the air. I chuckled and explained that I was afraid of snakes because, when I was nine, my brother's pet boa constrictor had escaped its terranium, made its way out of his bedroom, and it ate my pet hamster. My parents got rid of the boa and made my brother apologize to me, but I had been afraid of reptiles ever since. I said without exaggeration that walking in on that creature, swallowing my still-kicking hamster, was the scariest thing that I ever saw. Nate looked sympathetic, and he handed me a cookie from the package that we had been snacking on. We were silent for a minute, listening to the rain and fire, when I had asked the question, What's the scariest thing that ever happened to you? Nate seemed to freeze. I wondered for a moment if he hadn't heard me, and then I noticed that his coffee cup was violently shaking. The thankfully lukewarm at that point coffee, it had spilled all over his hands and onto the blanket in his lap. Nate. The sound of my voice brought him back to reality. He sucked in a quick breath and noticed that his hand and blanket were soaked in coffee. He frowned and got up, swearing at the spilled coffee. Uh, I'm sorry, I just... No, man, I'm sorry. I didn't know you would, you know, freeze up like that. You don't have to tell me if you don't want... No. He was so blunt that it had surprised me. He had gotten rid of the ruined blanket. It was a cheap one anyway. Wiped off his hand and refilled his coffee cup. He came back and sat in his chair, facing me. We had been friends for years, but... I had never seen him look so grave. It's been years since I thought of it. The scariest thing that ever happened to me. As much as I want to, though, I'll never forget it. Do you want to talk about it? No, but I will. I need to. Just remember something for me. I'm not making this up. I couldn't if I tried. This isn't some campfire ghost story that happened to my brother's friend, sister's mailman, or anything like that. I'm not making this up, okay? I nodded. And despite his warnings, my interest had tripled. He sighed and took a long sip from his coffee. He turned and faced the fire. He didn't look at me once through the story. I asked questions and he answered every one. But he never turned away from the fire. I was 17 and feeling like I was the king of the world. 
I just purchased, with my parents' help, a used but nice red pickup truck. One of the prettiest girls in the school was my girlfriend. I had just gotten a letter of acceptance to my dad's alma mater. I thought things couldn't get any better. To celebrate, Sabrina, my girlfriend, our friend AJ, and a lot of our friends threw a party. I don't really remember it, but it's where I first heard about the old raindrop inn. The raindrop inn? Yep, some old tell back in the 1920s or the 1930s. No one knew the full story, but rumor had it. The town founder had built the hotel for his wife, that it had been her dream to live in a hotel. On the opening night, however, the founder found his wife in their bedroom, fooling around with a bellboy. She screamed when she saw her husband, and apparently threw herself off the balcony. The founder never set foot in the hotel again, and later sold it to the highest bidder. It was open for another 20 years. During that time, 18 people died in it, most of them by their own hand, jumping off the balcony just like the founder's wife. A maid who saw one of them jump says that the guest screamed, Leave me alone, into the bedroom before she had jumped off the balcony. When the maid had checked in, there was no one in the bedroom. Okay, but what about the other guests? The ones that didn't suffer the same fate. Only five of the dead guests didn't. I don't remember the other two. But there was a couple that were found tied together in a full bathtub, fully clothed, with a plugged-in TV in there with them. The other was a five-year-old boy who just disappeared. His mother told the police that she had tucked her son into bed and heard some terrible squealing noise after she had shut the door. She had described it as a sort of squeal of delight, and it wasn't from her son. She ran back in and he was gone. No body, no blood, nothing. Apparently, that was the last straw. The owner was sick of bad publicity and closed the place down. I learned all of this the night of that party. I didn't believe it and told the guys that they had told a nice ghost story. They got defensive and told me to go see it for myself if I didn't believe them. And then they told me where to find it. Everyone knew that it was just inside the forest behind the high school. I laughed it off and we continued to party. But I kept that story in my mind. The next night, Sabrina was over at my house. We were trying to watch a movie, but my little brother Pete wouldn't leave us alone. He kept saying that it was his turn for the TV that he was going to tell mom if we didn't hand over the remote. Do you have a little brother? I nodded. And then you probably know how I felt. I finally threw the remote down on the couch and went onto the porch with Sabrina. We were talking. She was suggesting that we go to her house to watch the movie. I forgot what exactly we were talking about though. Anyway, my mom walks out of the house and tells me that she needs to run out for a few hours. She was a vet in some butthole, her words not mine, had run over a dog. She told me that I was in charge for the night and asked Sabrina if she wanted to ride home. She said no and that we were going to finish our movie. Mom told me that she would be home by about 1am, reminding me to watch Pete and then left. I told Sabrina that if Pete was going to be a pain and hog the TV all night, then I didn't really want to stay home. 
It was a Friday night, not to mention the start of summer. I told her that we should do something exciting, something cool. She asked me what I wanted to do. At that point, it was about 8 o'clock at night and a few places were closed. I thought for a second before I remembered the night before. I asked her if she had heard about the raindrop in. Surprisingly, she hadn't. I told her what the guys had told me the night before. She listened but asked when I was done why I brought it up. And I told her that I wanted to go and see it. She laughed at me. Very funny. But I told her that I was serious. If it was as close as the guys at the party had said, then we could be there and back before my mom got home. She was quiet for a second and then started to look excited. She had always had a bit of fascination with urban legends, and I knew that it wouldn't take much convincing to get her to go to the old hotel. But then her face fell again. You have to watch your brother, remember? There's no way that he wouldn't tell your mom. I cursed under my breath. She was right. If Pete knew what we were doing, he would want to come. The kid had read every Goosebumps book twice, and he loved scary stuff. If he came, he would ruin the fun. And if we left, he would tell mom. But then I had an idea. When I was a kid, my dad got Pete and I into collecting those little Hot Wheels cars. I had kept up my collection even in my teenage years, and I had about 300 by that night. Pete had less than half of that, and he was seriously jealous of my collection. I had even caught him in my room once or twice, trying to steal the more impressive models. I told Sabrina that I knew what to do and went inside. Pete had turned the TV to one of those kids' channels and got mad when I had paused it, but he heard me out. I told him that I would give him 50 of the cars for my collection, his choice, if he didn't tell mom about Sabrina and I going out for a while. He agreed, but he asked where we were going. Just some place some friends at school told me about. He seemed suspicious, but he nodded. He then turned back to the TV and pulled his favorite red baseball cap down to his eyebrows, signaling that the conversation was over. I went up to my room to grab a flashlight and a jacket, and then I came downstairs. The TV was off and Pete was gone. I assumed that he had gone to his room and I went back to the porridge. Sabrina was annoyed that I had taken so long, but then smiled and said that she wanted to go. I turned towards my truck and I was halfway to the driveway when Sabrina told me to turn around. I had left the front door open. I pulled my keys from my pocket and shut the door and locked it, but I was confused. I was sure that I had locked the door on my way out the first time, hadn't I? I shook it off and then went to the car with Sabrina. It was barely five minutes from our house to the high school, but we wasted about ten driving around looking for the old, unkempt road that allegedly led to the raindrop. Finally, I parked my truck and we both got out. I turned on the flashlight and we walked around. Finally, Sabrina spotted it. You wouldn't notice it from a distance, as a lot of grass had grown between the cracks, but there was a lot of really broken asphalt that made a trail leading into the woods. We looked at each other and we grinned. We were about to start when I heard a sound like a car door slamming. We both turned to my truck, but there was nothing there. I remembered then that I had unlocked it, and I pressed the button on the key fob. Sabrina, more eager now than ever, 
grabbed my upper arm and pulled me down the path. We walked for maybe 20 minutes before we had found it. We both sort of froze when it came into view. I don't think either of us had completely believed that it was real, but there it was. It looked like it had once been nice. It was three stories tall and it must have been really well built if it was still standing after 70 years, 50 of them without any maintenance. But still, the age it did show. The building was being strangled by Kudzu, with every window being broken or having no glass at all. The original color of the walls was impossible to guess, as the wind rained in time and turned them all an earthy brown. The roof was missing multiple tiles. There were massive cracks in the walls and the front porch was sagging in. Man, to top it all off, we clearly hadn't been the first people to visit the place. Graffiti written in neon orange spray paint had been sprayed on several blank spots on the walls. Keep out, run, stay away, danger, that kind of stuff. Like that was written wherever the artist could find space. We should have gone home right then and there. I was scared out of my mind and judging by how tightly she was holding my hand. Sabrina was too. But we still wanted to go in. Maybe I was being stupid that night. Maybe I wanted to look tough in front of my girlfriend. I don't know. But we went in. The hotel was even creepier inside. At first glance, I thought it looked more like an old barn than an old hotel. But then, as my eyes adjusted to the dark, I saw that yes, it had been a hotel. There was the front desk, covered in mouse turds. There was the lobby bell, so rusty that it would never ring again. The half-eaten couch the lopsided love seat, an upside-down chair had been the sitting area in the lobby. There was even a luggage cart buried under so many dusty cobwebs that it looked like a sheer white curtain had been draped over it. From holes in the ceiling, moonlight illuminated the room. Well, this is inviting, Sabrina whispered. You scared? I whispered back, hoping that she would say yes so that we could leave. No, she responded, still whispering. I knew she was lying. You don't bury your fingernails into somebody's shoulder if you're relaxed. Are you scared? No, I lied. Why are we whispering? I don't know, she said, speaking normally. Do you want to try and go upstairs? I did not. What I wanted was to get out of there, make a beeline for the truck and go home, and wrestle away the TV remote from Pete but I didn't want my girlfriend to think that I was a wimp. So I tried to look brave and I nodded. The stairs were in surprisingly good shape, considering the state of the rest of the hotel. We had to dodge cobwebs which hung from the ceiling of the stairwell like party streamers, but we didn't have trouble getting to the next floor. That's when things got really creepy. The first thing we saw when we got to the hotel's second floor was a lump in the middle of the floor. Sabrina glanced at me, and I walked over to the lump. I only took one look before jumping back in disgust. The lump was a rabbit, or it had been. It was dead, and I didn't have to be a doctor to see what had killed it. There was a hole in its chest the size of my fist. From the two-second glance that I took, I could see that the rabbit's organs were all gone, and oddly enough, there wasn't even blood. The rabbit was nothing more than literal skin and bones. 
I didn't tell Sabrina this. I just said that the rabbit had been killed by something and that we should probably go. She was clearly freaked out by the rabbit, even if she didn't know how bad it was. We might have left right then and there if we hadn't heard something. Footsteps. We both froze and slowly turned to look at the door to the stairwell. Someone was coming up the stairs. I threw open the first door that I saw. The lock was sold that it fell off when I opened the door. I sort of hugged Sabrina to me and pulled her into the room. I closed the door as quietly as I could, hoping that whatever was coming up the stairs hadn't heard us in the hallway. And we both heard the door to the stairwell open. We looked at each other and both put fingers over our lips. I've never seen Sabrina's eyes so wide, and I have a feeling that mine looked the same. We listened closely as the thing that had walked up the stairs began to walk slowly down the hall. I heard it stop at what must have been the rabbit. At that point, I realized that I heard a new noise. There were voices coming from the hallway. No, not the hallway. Those voices were coming from all over the floor. I wrapped my arms around Sabrina as we listened. From somewhere, there came an inhuman squeal of delight followed by the scream of a small child. From a bathroom somewhere up the hall, there was begging and screaming, followed by a violent splash and the unmistakable sound of electricity. A woman screamed, Leave me alone! Followed by a window shattering and a distant heavy thud. My already hammering heart rate accelerated when I realized what I was listening to. I remembered the story from the party how a child had disappeared, a couple had been electrocuted, a woman had jumped off a balcony. We had just listened to those people die. Those sounds finally stopped, followed by what sounded like a sharp draw of breath from the hallway. I noticed then that the room was cold, eerily cold, especially for a night in late May, and it was quickly getting colder, like the source of the chill was moving up the hall. There was a sudden scream, and I was so rattled that I screamed and so did Sabrina. At that moment, instinct took over. I forgot about looking cool and just wanted to get out of there. I grabbed Sabrina's hand and charged through the door like a fullback. It was so old that I actually knocked it off its hinges as I ran. I caught a glimpse of some shapeless white thing. I didn't look any longer than that and I charged for the door to the stairwell. Considering how fast I was running, I'm amazed that neither of us hurt ourselves as we rocketed down the stairs. Despite my panic, I noticed something in the lobby that I hadn't before. There was a pile in the corner, a pile of limp, furry bodies, and they all had holes in them. At that point, I didn't want to see any more. Still holding Sabrina's hand, I sprinted across the lobby, flew out the front door and I tripped on the porridge. We both landed face down on the forest floor. I didn't know or care if I was hurt. I immediately got up, clawing at the dirt to get friction. Sabrina was a few steps ahead of me, calling at me to keep running and to not look back. The screams were pouring from the hotel windows, screams of terror and pain. That was all the incentive I needed to pick up my pace. I ran so fast that night that I think I broke a few Olympic records. The second that we saw the truck, we both jumped in. 
I twisted the key and stopped on the gas. My truck broke the speed limit three times over as we made a break for my house. When the school was out of view, I slowed down and pulled over to the side of the road. We took a minute to catch our breath. Sabrina was crying as she had been so scared and honestly I was too. Nothing in my life had prepared me for that. I wondered how close we had come to disappearing or dying that night. We stayed in the truck for a while, trying to get a hold of ourselves and processing what had happened. Finally, we both felt stable enough to go back to my house. At that point it was midnight and my mom would be home in an hour. I expected Pete to still be parked in front of the TV, and I remembered that I still needed to give him the cars that he wanted. At that moment, I was ready to give him my full collection. After that night, toy cars didn't seem important anymore. Sabrina went in first while I parked the car. I went in and saw that she wasn't there. I heard her upstairs and I went to make us a snack. I had just pulled out the chips and salsa when I heard her run down the stairs. I turned around with the chip platter smiling. She must have been hungry. But then I looked at her face. And that's when I saw how scared she was. She looked me in the eyes and practically shouted, Where's your brother? The tears started streaming down his face. Pete had hidden in the back of my truck. He had overheard what I had said on the porch about the hotel and he had gone with us. He had opened the front door. He had slammed my truck door. He was making the footsteps that we had heard on the stairs. And he was the one who screamed. I, I left him there. For a few minutes, he was silent. I sat back stunned and I didn't know what to say. Finally, he spoke again. A week later, I went back to that hotel. And I don't know why, closure maybe. As I drove up, I saw it on the porch. I didn't want to see it. I didn't want it to be there. But it was. Pete's red a baseball cap. He took a deep breath and finally looked at me again. And that's the scariest thing that ever happened to me. We didn't speak for the rest of the night. The fire was still blazing and the rain was still hammering down. But it wasn't peaceful anymore. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed all the stories. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.